Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to a special post-election episode of The Economist Asks. Today, we're asking, how did Donald Trump win the presidency and what might he do with it? The Trump triumph has shaken the world, but where did it all start? Recently on this show, we spoke to his biographer, Mark Fisher, about what made him run in the first place. Initially, he wanted to uh, embarrass the politicians. He wanted to get across the idea that he was this decisive CEO who could get things done and who was a truth teller who would stand up against the political correctness of the age. Well, the Donald, with his mixture of outrage, incorrigibility and rude will to power, has certainly done that. But when the presidency became a more realistic prospect... It became all about winning, which is what much of Donald Trump's life is about. He defied polls, scandal and worldwide opprobrium. And Donald Trump emerged victorious in the early hours of this morning. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. Today, we reflect on the election in a roundtable with our US editor, John Prideau, and special guest, U.S. foreign policy expert, Leslie Vinjamuri. There's this powerful sense of, I'm more American than those folks are. I'm more representative of the country. I am quite optimistic about the prospect for unifying America. In fact, I think the division is something that we often overstate when we look at the United States from the outside. While our Washington, D.C. bureau chief was in Wisconsin, home of the House leader, Paul Ryan, to assess the state of the Republican Party. Those Republicans told me on voting day that they had voted down the ticket and they'd voted for Donald Trump. First, though, Max Stepanovich is a Republican strategist from Florida. He managed Ronald Reagan's campaign in the state in 1984, and he also played a key role in the 2000 election recount. He spoke to us about what it's like to be a never-Trumper on November the 9th. I am bewildered, surprised, depressed. I'm not going to do anything today. I'm going to think about it. It is possible that I will not be able to, in good conscience, remain in a party led by Donald Trump and the agenda of which is his stated intentions. Uh, you know, I might have to become an NPA like a number of prominent people in America have already done. Mr. Stepanovich had one note of caution, though. Trump's strategy, he thought, might work for him in this election but it's unmanageable in future campaigns. White vote was a smaller percentage than it had been before of the overall. But Trump got a higher percentage of it, and that produced victory. Think about the math for a moment. The other demographic groups of Hispanics, Asians, African Americans are growing faster. Whites aren't even really replacing themselves in America anymore. It was a short-term tactic that worked, but it may be a unwise long-term strategy. And finally, Mr. Trump has a lot of promises to make good on, almost too many. He's promised to deport 11 million people. He's promised to build a wall. He said that he's going to back away from NATO, said he's going to renege on all our trade treaties and return to kind of a protectionism. You know, this is the first time since I think 1928, maybe that the Republican parties control both houses of Congress and the White House. We're not going to have any excuses not to do the stuff we've talked about for so long now. So we're going to have to do it. And I think that when you start doing it, I think it's going to prove to be more difficult than people think. And I think the unintended consequences may well be pretty severe. Max Stepanovich there. 
Well, with me now in the studio to mull this further is our John Prido, and from Chatham House, the Foreign Policy Institute, Leslie Vinjamuri. So, John, we'll start with you. You've been up all night watching the results unfold. What, in your opinion, were the key victories for Mr Trump? Well, I think there's a short-term cause and a more more medium-term cause. To take the short-term ones first, much higher turnout among white working-class Americans than pollsters had expected and lower turnout among non-white Americans generally than pollsters had expected. That leads you directly to Trump's outperformance, particularly in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, huge win in Ohio, and that got him into the White House. A more medium-term perspective, I think you have to look at some institutional failures um, in the media, both in terms of not taking his chances seriously enough. I think also in terms of early on treating him too much like uh, sort of entertainment, somebody who's good for ratings, institutional failures in the Republican Party, a failure to you know, reject a candidate who really didn't stand for any of the ideas that the Republican Party's believed in for decades, uh, failures in polling. And then I think you come uh, back eventually to a failure of Hillary Clinton's candidacy. So, Leslie, do you broadly agree with John's assessment? And uh, tell us what you think about these blocks of, of voters. Has it exploded the idea that this is really poor white America? Because support for Trump went a lot wider than that. It did go a lot wider than that. Um, recent data that I've seen suggests that a there were many very wealthy whites who voted for Donald Trump. And so there is an identity politics that seems to be much more central than class politics in this particular case. Is it conscious identity politics? That has a funny loaded phrase, isn't it? Usually associated with the left, not always, but, but more broadly, that you're kind of encouraged to vote as a bloc and you identify in that way. That would be interesting, given it's the sort of thing that uh, Mr. Trump might otherwise disdain. You're right. The label identity politics is usually associated with the left, and it's one that we apply from the outside. But I think what it means for people on the ground is that they feel close to particular communities that they share cultural values with, that they live with, that they go to the local churches with, that they eat with, that they dine with, that they've grown up with. And they share interests and they share values and they go to the polls accordingly. That chimes with something that our reporters have been telling me today after spending time in polling stations yesterday, which is that particularly talking to Trump voters, there's this powerful sense of I'm more American than those folks are. I'm more representative of the country. I don't really like what they represent and the direction that that they want to take the country. And that wasn't just a criticism of Hillary Clinton. It was actually, you know, the people who are going to vote for her. And what do we make of Mr Trump's victory speech? We're hearing, of course, from both Mr Trump and from Hillary Clinton today. He struck a quite emollient tone, which seemed to take the wind out of some sails to Leslie. How do you think he was sending a message, particularly to the wider world? I think that Donald Trump understands that this is a very unique moment possibly not one that even he anticipated, and that there's a premium being placed on him right now to stand up and see if he can reconcile the nation. We all thought that we would wake up today and Hillary Clinton would have the extraordinary task of bringing together a very divided nation. And in fact, it's landed on the lap of Donald Trump, who many attribute as being responsible for dividing that nation. He's obviously aware of that. I think he's been coached quite quite well in the past several days. 
And I think that was reflected in his speech, not only with respect to what he delivered as a message to the American public, but also in his effort to reach out beyond America's borders and to say that we, America, would work with anybody who would like to work with us. There was an undertone in that comment. There was a little bit of an implicit threat. But nonetheless, it was, it was much more conciliatory than we've seen from him in recent weeks. Yeah, on that speech, I agree with you. The words were better than the words that Donald Trump has used you know, throughout the past year campaigning. However, I also think it was a fairly sort of standard. Now we bring the nation together. It's a fairly easy speech to make as a victor. I took the precaution yesterday of re-watching Richard Nixon's acceptance speech in 1968, at which point he said that he would govern for the whole nation, would bring the divided country together, and he also said he would run the most sort of open administration uh, in American history. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. So people do say these things when they win. Putting it in practice is much, much harder. It depends really whether the country, Leslie, wants to not be divided or wants to come together again. It is a bit of a boilerplate, as, as John reflects. Do you feel that this view of America now as a country for the foreseeable future divided among ethnic demographic lines is the way it is going to be or is there a bridge? Perhaps it was offered by the spectrum bending between left and right a little bit with Bernie Sanders' uh, impact on the Democrat race. I just wondered if you see any way for Donald Trump to fulfill that role. I am quite optimistic about the prospect for unifying America. In fact, I think the division is something that we often overstate when we look at the United States from the outside. Uh, Americans as a people, as a culture, tend to be very collective. They like working with each other across divides. And it takes a certain kind of politics and mobilization to draw very nasty lines. This isn't to deny that there are many people who have suffered wage stagnation, who feel left out and left behind, and notice the rise of inequality and the fact that they have less and can provide less to their families. But I think it takes an active policy to divide people. Now, whether Donald Trump can actually help us overcome that is an entirely different question. He's not proven to be conciliatory. I sensed in his speech that the crowd was almost uncertain what to make of his comments because it wasn't what they'd heard in the past. And they were hesitant and unsure whether to behave. Let's turn to Trump and the wider world, your day job, so to speak, Leslie, as an analyst at Chatham House here in London. Give me, if you like, your concern list briefly from the top and where are the territories or countries that you think we should be looking to first and foremost in the Trump presidency for impact? Well, I think at the heart of America's consideration of its alliances, of course, Europe is at the centre and especially the UK. And you need friends in order to do important and significant things in the world. And America historically has been aware of that. And the rhetoric that's come out of Donald Trump has been very frightening on this dimension. The notion that NATO might not be a key commitment for him anymore, that he might expect a huge amount, not just a basic spending level from America's European partners, but far beyond this. And the idea that he would become quite close and cozy with Putin is terrifying, frankly, given current politics in Europe and in Russia to the Europeans. So I think that would be 
the number one concern, really, because without a very firm foundation between the U.S. and Europe, things are unlikely to go well on a range of different dimensions. Would you put your worry list in the same order as Leslie John? Or I think I've different? got a similar worry list. I, If we're confining it to Europe, I think it's the first American president since the formation of the European Union who I think would actively cheer the breakup of the European Union, something that the Americans, American government has long seen as part of the securing of the peace after 1945 in Europe. And, you know, that, that would be a big change. I think on the relationship with Russia... Um, I'm also a little bit worried. I was talking to a Russia expert earlier today who suggested that although there's you know, clearly some sort of warmth between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, the potential for some sort of macho contest to go horribly wrong is, is non-negligible. Yes, I was thinking that, Leslie, as someone who's formerly based in Moscow. Things can tip very easily in that relationship. We know from leaks from the Hillary camp that she wanted to, in some way, revisit or solidify that Moscow-Washington relationship, which frankly hadn't gone too well under Barack Obama. How do you see Trump handling Putin when we don't really know how he operates in, in foreign policy, but we do know that he's quite competitive? It's very important to, to differentiate, as you do, between who he is and what he does. And the problem with Donald Trump is that who he is is he's somebody who's very unpredictable, very whimsical, um, very impulsive. And so developing a strong relationship with a very difficult partner like Putin is is unlikely to be steady and stable, as you imply, I think. We've only heard the word optimist once in this conversation. It was, it was from Leslie. It was pretty brief. People might like to spool back and listen to it again because there's not much of it about today. But I, I'm just putting a devil's advocate hat on and saying, well, if you're the UK, to indulge our parochialism here in, in Britain for just a moment, you might think this is not such a bad outcome, John, because your UK-US trade deal is likely to go floating through. He has at least made, made warm noises about that. And if Mr Trump doesn't like the EU, he's patting Brexit Britain on the back, we might go to the front of the queue rather than the back of the queue to which Barack Obama rhetorically at least consigned us. I think that Britain's interests are broader than that. I think the whole idea that has been, you know, sort of part of Britain's psyche for the past 50 years at least, that the country has a responsibility in the world, along with America, to try and make sure things don't go too badly, the sort of passing of that will feel very, very sore. Donald Trump got a bit of a brickbat from Angela Merkel by way of a welcome. Very conditional, the language that Mrs Merkel used. She talked about respecting human rights. She went quite far in terms of pointed comments about uh, treating people and minorities as equals. How do you think that will go down in the new presidency? Donald Trump has been no great advocate for human rights. As we all know, he's said that the U.S. would certainly waterboard and a whole lot more. He then reversed and came back to that position again quite wholeheartedly. He's made no indication that he intends to respect human rights. And I think that Angela Merkel was taking a very important choice to name and shame him when he's strong so that once he actually comes into the role, the the foundation has been laid that human rights will remain a priority, certainly from Germany and coming from Europe. We're just seeing Hillary Clinton coming on stage now. She's been introduced by Tim Kaine and she's embracing him now. So I thought what we might do is listen to Hillary Clinton, effectively her 
concession speech. She's in black, but she's got a great flash of purple in her jacket and on her shirt, which I, I think that's a very female way of showing defiance myself. Let's have a listen to her. Last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I hope that he will be a successful president for all Americans. This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for. And I'm sorry that we did not win this election for the values we share and the vision we hold for our country. I just had a rather strong concession speech from Hillary Clinton. Uh, she's looking very collected and very together, Leslie. But what stood out for you in what she chose to highlight? Well, she was clearly very honest about how difficult the result has been. And I think that her, her, her manner and her tone was one that people will really feel the experience with her because, of course, remember, the people that she's speaking to campaign very hard. But the other thing that really struck me was her embrace of democratic values. Peaceful transition to power is absolutely essential. And she's saying that, of course, as a Democrat, but she's also saying that to Donald Trump. What stood out for you, John? There was one line near the beginning where she said of Donald Trump, we owe him an open mind and a chance to lead. And I thought that was a little bit upbeat and a little bit uplifting. Do you believe that? Hillary Clinton was an open mind about Donald Trump, just saying? I think it's respectful of the mandate that he's been handed by the American people. And I think people who are on the opposite side of the arguments of Donald Trump have a duty to be equally respectful of that. I can see a presidency fraught with dangers both for America and for the rest of the world. But maybe I'm completely wrong. I'd love to be completely wrong. She said, we have not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling. Do you think that this is, Leslie, something that particularly is eating away at Hillary Clinton? Well, I think it's eating away a lot of at a lot of Hillary Clinton's supporters. It's very difficult to look at women, to look at young girls, to look at young female rising leaders and professionals and and think about this result. It's particularly painful, I think, for women. Because of Donald Trump or because of the failure of Hillary Clinton? Because there was so much hope invested in a woman being able to succeed, a highly competent, very experienced leader who was in an election against a white male who had absolutely no experience in government. Why do you think this concession speech leaves Donald Trump and we should come back to him? He is the victor of this race. John? In some senses, their speeches were quite similar, weren't they? They both mm. said it's time to bring a divided nation together. I think everything we've seen in this long, long election campaign suggests that'll be even harder than normal. I'm somewhat pessimistic about that. I don't see Donald Trump as a great sort of uniter. You're testing his word like a bad penny, as the old, old saying goes. And which party, just a finishing thought from both of you, do you think has the bigger problem or challenge coming out of this election? You can kind of read it any which way. Leslie, put you on the spot first as our guest. I still, I mean, today, of course, much of the commentary suggests that it's the Democrats, but I still think it's the Republicans. The Republicans have delivered this election... But as a party, they don't have a coherent program. Um, so many people have defected. Donald Trump now has to build an administration, and the pickings are slim. So many people walked away from him as a leader. 
and his policies don't reflect the Republican Party. So that fundamental problem still has to be resolved. What's the problem, John, on the Democrat side, apart from the fact that they've just lost the White House? There are many problems on the Democratic side, and I think the splits in the Republican Party leading up to this vote sort of concealed them somewhat. And the first big problem is that for a long time, Democrats have believed that demography is destiny. They were in the natural party of government because of the way that America's racial makeup was changing. That looks like it's not true, first point. Second point, they are out of power almost everywhere where it matters. You know, they've lost the White House. They've in the minority in the Senate. They're in the minority in the House. They have a minority of governorships in the states, a minority of state legislatures. You have to look to city mayors before you can find a sort of democratic power base. And that's important because they have a shallower pool of candidates. So their recovery is going to be really hard just from that point of view. And furthermore, I'd add to that, my assumption, again, going into this week, I thought Hillary Clinton would win, was that the Republican Party would take a more populist turn. It's quite possible we end up with two rather populist parties. It seems to me possible, I'm not saying it's likely, that the Democrats, or some Democrats at least, look at Donald Trump's success, conclude that the kind of centrist program of Hillary Clinton is wrong, a more left-wing populist ideology might be more successful at appealing to some of the people that Donald Trump has won, and, and they might be able to hang on some of their minority votes as well. So it seems to me that there's a real tussle that's going to go on now for what the Democratic Party is about as well. Thank you, John Prideau, and to our guest, Leslie Vingemarie. Finally, we speak to our DC Bureau Chief, David Rennie. He's been writing this week's Lexington column from Wisconsin, home of Paul Ryan. And David joins me on the line now. David, Wisconsin wasn't even supposed to be a swing state for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So what happened last night? That's right. Uh, This has been a Democratic state, at least uh, for the White House, since 1988. And Hillary Clinton's camp was so confident that she didn't even visit Wisconsin as the main party nominee. And unfortunately for Hillary Clinton, this was one of the upper Midwest kind of rural Rust Belt states where it turned out that when Donald Trump boasted of a secret army of angry, often working class white people who were going to turn out and vote in numbers that would astonish pollsters and confound the experts, he was right. People laughed at him, but he turned out to be absolutely right. That's exactly what happened. So in the end, it was pretty close. Uh, It was uh, fewer than 40,000 votes in it. But this was meant to be one of the bricks in Hillary Clinton's so-called blue wall. uh, And it crumbled. You're on the ground in Wisconsin. Have you picked up any of that feeling? And there's a lot of talk now about what was this secret Trump factor If you can take it out of the box, what is it? So it was really interesting. I deliberately came here because I'm in the south of the state, the home turf of the most senior Republican in Congress, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who has distanced himself quite a lot from Donald Trump. Uh, Paul Ryan is a devout Catholic, a kind of stern fiscal conservative. Uh, He has no interest in the kind of nativist kind of boorishness that Donald Trump was peddling. And he actually was one of the few very uh, important Republicans to rebuke Donald Trump during the campaign. Wisconsin wasn't friendly territory for Donald Trump uh, during the primary. It chose someone else, Ted Cruz. And so I came down to watch people voting, many of whom said that they hadn't initially been Donald Trump supporters. They were devoted Paul Ryan fans. And yet, almost to a man and woman, Those Republicans told me on voting day that they had voted down the ticket and they'd voted for Donald Trump. 
And we're now hearing rumours that Paul Ryan won't be Speaker of the House. Do you believe that to be true? Well, I'm about to go to a press conference with Paul Ryan, but I was at his uh, victory party last night, which was very subdued. He came out, he thanked people for helping him get re-elected to his House district, didn't mention Donald Trump by name. It was very, very terse, very brief. He sort of thanked his family, thanked his old friends. You know, he's he's been the congressman down here for a long time. This is his power base. But then we had the extraordinary scene that in the absence of Paul Ryan, Fox News was blaring from giant screens in this hotel ballroom. And at one point, Sean Hannity, who is sort of a Fox News TV personality, but is also incredibly close to Donald Trump, he came on the, on the line to say that he'd been speaking to Donald Trump that night and that he thought, among other things, that Paul Ryan didn't deserve to keep his job because he hadn't been loyal enough. So you had all these Paul Ryan loyalists getting their news of their hero's possible sort of uh, sacking uh, via a TV personality on a giant screen in a hotel ballroom. That's the kind of evening it was. So, so goes the election in 2016. I guess, David, some people might be saying, well, here's a setback for Paul Ryan, but he does represent a tradition of muscular American republicanism that comes to the fore sporadically, is often very powerful when it comes to holding office. Is he now sitting in the outer circle waiting for something to befall Donald Trump and conservatism to come back to his way of thinking. Well, that really depends as to whether you think Donald Trump has kind of made the Republican Party the Trump Party or whether Donald Trump will come to seem like a kind of one-term anomaly. And, and, you know, it's going to take a while for that to show out. To understand Paul Ryan, he's not just today's Speaker of the House. He's kind of the keeper of the Reaganite flame. He is the man whose kind of tax cut proposals and things are very familiar to anyone who has followed conventional Republican thinking about how you shrink the government, cut taxes, reduce regulation, support free trade, listen carefully to what big business wants. That kind of agenda was very much kind of Paul Ryan's agenda. We will now find out whether Donald Trump will be like a sort of constitutional monarch who signs bills sent to him by Congress and work with the Republican majority, which was the line that people like Paul Ryan had been peddling until recently? Or actually, will Donald Trump be a hands-on chief executive with his own very strong ideas, many of which will run straight across the sort of taboos and shibboleths of, of Reaganite policy? David Rennie from the surprise swing state of Wisconsin. Thank you. Well, that's all from this rather historic episode of The Economist Asks. To read more about Trump victorious, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us on economist.com and do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. 